The central theme of the book of Colossians is the glory, the sufficiency, the centrality, the preeminence of Christ Jesus. That's what the whole epistle is about. Christ is glorious, worthy of all our worship and our praise. Christ is the only one in whom we may find salvation from sin's penalty. Christ is the only one in whom we may find salvation from sin's power. It was through Him that all things were made, and in Him all things hold together. Thus, both as our Creator and as our Redeemer, Christ is glorious, worthy of all our worship and our praise. Thus, we need to look to Him at the beginning of our salvation as the only and all-sufficient justifier. And we need to look at Jesus every step of the way as the only and all-sufficient sanctifier. It is Christ who, in the end, after the beginning and the middle, will be glorified. And it's Christ's glory that we will enjoy that we will partake in, that we will reflect forever in our glorified state. Everything that God provides to His elect people comes to us in Christ Jesus. Picture an hourglass in your mind's eye with the sand that comes from the top down into the bottom. Then when all the sand is run through, you can flip it over. And the sand starts slipping through the neck again. Christ Jesus is like the neck of the hourglass. Through whom everything that our triune God desires to give us comes. It is Christ's holiness which serves as a backdrop against which we see the unholiness of our lives. And our desperate need of a Savior. It is Christ's righteous life which becomes our righteousness in God's eyes for our justification. It's Christ's wrath bearing death which becomes our penalty paid in God's eyes for our justification. It is Christ's Spirit who transforms our heart, opening us up to these realities. It's Christ's own Spirit. Who reveals the glory of Christ to us. It's Christ's own spirit who binds us to him in mystical union. It's Christ's own spirit who works in us to become more obedient to him. It is Christ's law which serves as the pattern and the standard of our sanctification. It is Christ's kingdom into which we come at conversion, it is Christ's return that we long for, and it's Christ that we worship in the meantime. It is Christ we tell others about. It's Christ's prophetic work, priestly work, and kingly work, which is the basis of our salvation. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, What is your only comfort in life and death? And it answers this way that I am not my own but belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that not a hair, that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. It is in Jesus, always in Jesus, and only in Jesus that we receive everything that our triune God desires to give us. As Colossians 1, 15-20 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the central theme of the book of Colossians. Is in Christ always in Christ, only in Christ, that we receive everything that God desires to provide for His people. Christ is glorious and worthy of all our worship and our praise, both as our Creator and as our Redeemer. Christ is the only one in whom we may find salvation from sin's penalty. Christ is the only one in whom we may find salvation from sin's power. And therefore, Colossians tells us, our lives must be oriented Christward. Our lives ought to model the truth, be consistent with the truth, be in harmony with the truth that Christ is preeminent. Our lives should reflect the truth that Jesus is glorious, that Jesus is the only and all-sufficient That He is central. Our lives ought to reflect these glorious things that we've just discussed. Therefore, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, I think, is actually basically the thesis statement of the whole book of Colossians. It's a good summary of the whole theology of the book of Colossians. Colossians 2 and verse 6 says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did the Colossians receive Him? As the glorious, preeminent, and all-sufficient One. Paul reminds them these truths about Christ and then urges them to maintain the centrality and preeminence of Christ in their individual lives and in the church. And not get sucked into the self-made religion the pagan spirituality, the heresies with a Judeo-Christian veneer that were creeping into the church, and other such false spiritualities that were enticing them. 
Paul is saying, listen, you saw Him in the beginning. The glorious One. The all-sufficient One. You saw that He was it. He was everything. All you need. You saw that in the beginning. As you received Him. So walk in Him. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians. So, to all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, I tell you the same thing. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. May your lives be glorifying to Christ. May your lives be oriented in a Christ-word direction. May each of our lives be oriented toward Christ in such a way that we could be called Christ-word people. Would our church be oriented toward Christ in such a way that we could be called a Christ-word church? Would our individual lives and would our life together as a congregation reflect the truths that Christ is preeminent, that Christ is glorious, that Christ is sufficient, that He is worthy of our worship and our praise, that He is central? Would these things be true of us? Now, of course, all of this raises the question, What does this sort of life look like? What does it look like to have a life that is Christward? Our passage today, which I read for you a few moments ago, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, gives us examples of Christ-glorifying people, and therefore implicitly answers that question. In this passage, we get a glimpse into the lives and circumstances of a variety of people. And all of them, except one, whom we'll talk about in a few moments, all of them are presumably living Christ-glorifying lives. I believe that one fundamental reason that God included things like genealogies and greetings in the Scriptures is to remind us or perhaps to teach us for the first time, that we're not dealing with mythology. And we're not dealing with abstract philosophical ideas or abstract theological ideas that are out there in the world of thought for the intellects of the world and the intellects of the church simply to debate about and discuss while the rest of us go on with our normal lives. We're not dealing with mere ideas. The genealogies and the greetings of Scripture help us see that we're dealing with real people and a real God, real guilt, real salvation, real heaven and hell. Let me illustrate this idea. We can keep Christianity at an emotionally comfortable distance when we say things like, those who don't trust in Jesus will go to hell. But it impacts us more emotionally when we say things like, if my children don't trust in Jesus, they will go to hell. And you could name them, right? Whether it's Maddox or Wade or 
Eliza or Kagan or Liam. It hits home when you start naming names. The glory of Christ's salvation, likewise, can seem intangible or theoretical when we say, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But when we say, Tevin has come to Christ, Christ will never cast him out. Shalisa has come to Christ, and Christ will never cast her out. You see, these things come home to us when we start naming names. We feel more of the weight and the reality of such a great salvation. Real names then in genealogies and greetings of Scripture are included, at least in part, to help our hearts feel the reality of the doctrine that the rest of Scripture puts forward. What we are taught in the doctrinal sections of Scripture come to life when we read the genealogies and when we read the greetings. We see that there were real people wrestling with the very issues that were being discussed in the doctrinal sections of the letter. We see that there were real people through whom God preserved the line of the coming Messiah and so forth. The genealogies and the greetings help us in these respects. So let's look at these people mentioned and see them as case studies pertaining to the doctrine contained in the rest of the letter to the Colossians. What does it look like to have a Christ-glorifying life? Well, let's see how the people lived whom Paul approvingly mentions and commends. And what does it look like not to live a Christ-glorifying life? We'll look also at the one name mentioned whom we know later abandoned Paul and even Jesus himself. So we'll begin with positive examples of Christ-glorifying living, and then we'll look at one example of not living a Christ-glorifying life. And then finally we'll look at the implications and the applications of these examples as they pertain to us. So beginning with positive examples of Christ-glorifying living, let's look at two names at the same time. Paul and Tychicus. One is well-known, one is obscure. Both are Christ-worth. Paul, obviously we know, the writer of more books of the New Testament than any other. Tychicus, not so much. He's mentioned a number of times in the New Testament, but we actually don't know much about him. He's mentioned in sections like this, sort of in passing. He was a pastor, and he was keen to serve the Lord faithfully. Beyond that, we know very little. Very few people will ever be well known to posterity or remembered in history books. Frankly, probably none of us in this room. In this way, most of us are probably more like Tychicus than Paul. I've done this before, but let me do it again because it fits here again. And I think it's a sobering reminder. But how many of you know the names of both your grandparents, um, or both sets of grandparents on both sides? 
Alright, how many how many know the names of every one of your great grandparents? You see? Even even just that generation. Listen, you owe your very life to these people. Without their existence, you wouldn't even exist. But you don't even know their names. Which means that if you have kids, your kids will know who you are. And if you have grandkids, they'll most likely know who you are. But then your grandkids' kids will most likely forget you. Just think about that. If even they will forget you, trust me, the rest of the world will likewise forget. You will be dead and you will be buried and no one will remember you. The reality is that that is most human beings that have ever walked the face of the earth. We read about a very, very small subset of human beings in our history textbooks. But what this mention of Tychicus here shows us is that you don't have to be mentioned in history textbooks. You don't have to change the world. You don't have to make a great mark, make a name for yourself. You can be unknown to your own posterity. You can be unknown to generations after you and yet still live a Christward life. Whether you are Paul or Tychicus is irrelevant. Consider simply that both of them lived and died with the glory of Christ motivating them and shaping their priorities. For whatever reason God saw fit to use Paul in a historically notable way and to use Tychicus in an obscure way. And yet both lived a Christ glorifying life. And one no less than the other. Let's look at another pair. Onesimus and Mark. Again, both of these men were Christward. Though neither started well. Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae who had met Paul in prison and been converted. When Paul writes the letter to the Colossian church, he sends it back via Onesimus, whom he says, is one of you. Isn't that beautiful? He intends for Onesimus to be reconciled to his master and also to be freed. This is recorded for us in the book of Philemon. I don't know if you say Philemon or Philemon here in Barbados. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I say Philemon. But that's the theme of Philemon. And he also clearly intends not only for Onesimus to be reconciled to his master and also to be free, but for him to be welcomed into the Colossian church. He writes that he is now one of you. And then Mark was a source of conflict between Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. Mark had previously deserted them. And so Paul didn't want to take Mark with them when the question came up in a subsequent missionary journey. It can't be said with certainty, but I think that Paul was actually right in his assessment of Mark and his unwillingness to take Mark along. It seems to me that Mark was young and immature in the faith. He showed promise, but he was not yet ready to come along with Paul and Barnabas 
at the time when the conflict occurred. That's my assessment. But in any case, we do know Mark did desert Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. So the question isn't actually about whether there used to be a problem with Mark's character. That's well established. The question is simply whether it had been sufficiently addressed by the time that the conflict came up between Paul and Barnabas. So both Onesimus and Mark had begun their lives badly. And for Mark, even his Christian life had begun badly with a significant failure on his record. And yet both here are mentioned in positive terms. They were both now leading Christ-glorifying lives. Let's look at another pair. Aristarchus and Jesus, who is also called Justice. These guys are to be found in verses 10 and 11. These men experience cultural, religious, and perhaps familial alienation for Christ. That's one way a Christward life sometimes looks. You come to Christ and you find yourself alienated from your culture, from your religious background, perhaps even from your family. We don't know much about Aristarchus and Jesus' justice, but we do know that they were Jews, which means that they would have experienced all these aforementioned aspects of alienation for believing that Jesus was the Messiah. As we know from even a cursory reading of the New Testament, the Jewish community by and large rejected the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. There's a lot of controversy caused over that. And so in coming as Jews to Christ Jesus, they would have experienced that cultural and that religious alienation. And it's possible, though it's not mentioned here, perhaps even familial alienation for these um, cultural and religious loyalties ran deep among the Jews. And there was a lot of the synagogue and the Jewish establishment had a lot of influence over Jewish families. You'll recall even in John chapter 9 that the parents of the man who Jesus had healed were afraid to speak up and say that it was Jesus for fear of being put out. And so they had to, to some extent, try to navigate this tension between the cultural and religious side and then their allegiance even to their own son. No doubt some parents would have chosen the cultural and religious belonging even over their children. Or vice versa, children might have chosen the cultural and religious side over their parents, depending on who it was in the family that converted. We do know further that Aristarchus was among those arrested in Ephesus when there was a riot as Paul ministered there. We do know that he was in prison with Paul at one point. And tradition has it 
that he was martyred shortly after the writing of this letter to the Colossians. So both Aristarchus and Jesus Justice were willing to pay a price to be Christian men. Both were willing to suffer for their belief that Christ is glorious and not to be seen as such. This is Christ we're living. It's not necessarily glamorous, but sometimes that's what it looks like. And let's look at another pairing. Epaphras and then Nympha or Nymphus. Different readings have it either as a feminine Nympha or as a masculine Nymphus. And as far as I can tell, it's somewhat inconclusive exactly who Nympha or Nymphus was. And even whether he was a man or she was a woman. They had differing roles in the body. Epaphras is in verse 12, and Nympha is in verse 15. They had differing roles in the body. One was a public teaching figure, and the other was a supportive, hospitality-giving, behind-the-scenes sort of person. Epaphras, it seems, actually planted the church at Colossae. If you look back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that the Colossians learned the grace of God from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So it seems that Epaphras is actually the one who planted the church in Colossae. But for whatever reason, he's now with Paul and Aristarchus in prison. Epaphras is... Their former pastor, a public teaching figure, Nympha or Nymphus, has a church in her house or his house, as the case may be. Differing roles in the body, but both Christward. And as we have Epaphras in our sights, let's consider one other aspect here. When he was unable to be preaching and teaching to the church at Colossae, he was praying. We see here in verse 12 that Epaphras is always struggling on the Colossians' behalf in his prayers. And in verse 13, Paul says that he has worked hard for you. So prayer is described here as working hard for the sake of others. Again, we see that there's more than one way to serve man, right? More than one way to be Christward. You don't necessarily need to be in the pulpit preaching, but you can be working hard for the sake of the church in other ways, serving in other ways. Then finally, let's consider a last pairing. Luke and Archippus, or Archippus. Both of them had vocations with built-in temporariness. And yet both were Christward. Either my work won't last forever, or I won't be doing this work forever. Luke, in verse 14, is called the beloved physician. Listen. There aren't going to be any pastors in heaven. There aren't going to be any preachers in heaven. 
our work will be done. We're going to have to find other jobs. So it will be with doctors. Because everybody will be well. There will be no more sickness, no more disease, no more disability. So Luke is working, as I work, in a vocation that won't last forever. There's built-in temporariness to our jobs. Built-in temporariness to his job. And then Archippus seems to be covering for Epaphras while Epaphras is away. This is most likely what it means in verse 17 where it says, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. It seems that Archippus was the one somehow called upon to fill in for Epaphras, their pastor. Well, for whatever reason, he was, had ended up in prison with Paul. So there's this encouragement to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And Archippus then, it seems, had a temporary role, sort of as an interim pastor. And so it wasn't so much that his work wasn't going to last forever as much as he wasn't going to be in that work forever. Both of these men then labored in vocations with built-in temporariness. But both lived Christward lives. And so as we consider these pairings, we consider Mark and Onesimus we consider Aristarchus and Jesus Justice Epaphras and Nympha Paul and Tychicus Luke and Archippus we see that there are varying circumstances varying lives and yet all these people are implicitly commended here as being Christward people otherwise we would go against the grain of everything that Paul's written in the letter to the Colossians. So I want to summarize this section with a lengthy quote here from Kevin DeYoung. He says, Our jobs are often mundane. Our devotional lives often, our devotional times often seem like a waste. Church services are often forgettable. That's life. We drive to the same places Go through the same routines with the kids. We buy food, buy the same food at the same supermarkets. We share the same bed with the same person every night. Church is often the same too. The same doctrines, the same basic order of worship, the same preacher, the same people. But in all the smallness and the sameness, God works. Like the smallest seed in the garden growing to unbelievable heights. Like beloved Tychicus, that faithful minister delivering the mail and apostolic greetings. Life is usually pretty ordinary, just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning, or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's a long obedience in the same direction. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people, holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory, and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, 
plodding consistency. And even if some people do have a more exciting or glamorous or visible profile of ministry, they should remember, as Jesus said, that having done everything they ought to do, they should realize that they're simply unprofitable servants who have merely done their duty. That's what Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. Roman generals returning from war used to have a slave ride in their chariot with them. And as the people lined the streets and applauded the victory, you know what the slave's job was? To repeat these words over and over so that the Roman general could hear. You are only a man. You are only a man. You are only a man. In anyone's life, in anyone's life, whether Mark or Onesimus or Nympha or Epaphras or Tychicus or Paul, in anyone's life, Jesus is the glorious one. Never the person, himself or herself. Now this passage does give us a negative example. Someone who did not live a Christ-glorifying life. And this brings us to our second and brief point before moving on to the third. In chapter 4 and verse 14 of Colossians, we read about Demas. And he's simply mentioned he as greeting the church. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, which was written later, we read this. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We might think that he had simply abandoned Paul if it weren't for the statement that he's in love with the present world. Demas has abandoned not only Paul, but Christ. Demas no longer believes that Christ is all. That he's everything. Christ no longer has the affections of Demas. As we spoke about Esau a couple of weeks ago, Demas' heart has gone after his eyes. In that verse that we just read, the world is the ungodly system, not the physical universe. We eagerly await the redemption of this physical world. It's destined for redemption as we are. But we must not love it inordinately or in its perverted state. Richard Baxter gives a description of Demas and an implicit caution to us as we consider his example. To the ungodly, nothing seems more desirable than this world. And therefore, he chooses heaven over hell, but not heaven over earth. So there are a variety of ways that people can lead a Christ-glorifying life. But there is one thing that all people who do not glorify Christ have in common. They love this present world more than Jesus. 
And that's a recipe for spiritual disaster. So thirdly and finally, let's consider the implications and applications of all this for our lives. First, concerning Paul and Tychicus, or learning from Paul and Tychicus, we see that neither a large platform nor obscurity matter in regards to a Christward life. You're not more faithful because you have 10,000 Twitter followers or Facebook friends or people in the pews in your congregation or whatever. Nor are you more faithful if you just speak the truth to the three people that are listening. You're, you're neither more nor less faithful depending on these results. What matters is the orientation. God sees fit not to use everyone the same way. But these things don't matter. Don't worry about that. Just live a Christward life. Let God grant whatever level of a platform or exposure that He wishes to give. And concerning Onesimus and Mark, recognize that a bad start doesn't diminish the possibility of a Christward life. Whether you lived an awful, sinful life before becoming a Christian, or perhaps an unbeliever might still be living an awful and sinful life and think that there's no way to change. We learn from Onesimus and Mark that, that repentance is possible. And that after doing the wrong thing, you can repent and follow after Christ and live a Christward life. Regarding Epaphras and Nympha, the pastor and the host of the house church, your gifts and your place within the body of Christ do not affect the possibility of a Christward life. Maybe you stand in the pulpit to preach. Maybe you don't. Maybe you serve in this way. Maybe you serve in that way. What we see is that it's not simply those who are out front, visibly leading, preaching, teaching, who can live a Christward life, but those who are simply extending hospitality, opening up their home in service to the church. Or by extrapolation, we could imagine a number of other ways that a brother or sister could serve in a Christward orientation. And then concerning Luke and Archippus, your vocation doesn't diminish the possibility of a Christward life. Whether you're a doctor or an interim pastor, whether you're a truck driver, whether you anodize aluminum, whether you are paid to just do general labor, whatever the case, you can have a Christward life in your vocation. We see that God uses all kinds of different people and is in relationship with all kinds of different people. So what a Christward life looks like then is making an honest assessment of your life. 
And then making real world decisions with your priorities. Geographical, temporal, financial, relational, etc. Making real world decisions about your priorities to maximize the glory of Christ. Respecting God's sovereignty and designing you as who you are and placing you where you are. That's what it looks like to lead a God-glorifying life, a Christ-word life. You simply take stock of who you are, the opportunities before you, as God has sovereignly placed you in a particular context and wired you a particular way. And then you make real-world decisions. You do some prioritization about what you're going to do with the, in the context that you've been placed in. But don't reduce a Christward life to externals. Living a Christward life is a matter of heart change which, which leads to behavior change. And so, just as you don't become an apple tree by duct taping apples to the branches... You don't become a Christian person by acting like it. Demas warns us that you can go through the motions so well, in fact, that you could deceive even an apostle and yet be in love with the world rather than Christ. What we need first is heart change. You must be born again. For an unbeliever listening, be honest. Have you been born again? It's better to be an Onesimus or a Mark starting poorly and finishing well than it is to be a Demas starting well and finishing poorly. If you know you're in love with the world and not Christ or you think that you might be, speak with a Christian friend. Speak with me. Let them or let me care for you, shepherd you as you work through these concerns. But don't pretend that everything is okay if you know or suspect that it might be. Because you can fool the people around you. You could even fool pastors or the whole congregation. But you can't fool God. But don't let an unbiblical severity hamper your assurance of salvation. After all, Christ is a glorious... Savior, which presupposes that we need saving. And we need saving from sin. And so seeing sin in ourselves is not necessarily an indicator that we are unconverted. All of us will see some sin in ourselves. All of the people mentioned in this passage, including Paul, experience temptation and sin within themselves. The question is, whose side are you on in that battle? Sin's side against Christ or Christ's side against sin? In other words, is the duty of loving and glorying in Christ an inconvenience to your true desire to indulge in sin? Or is your remaining sin an inconvenience to your true desire to love and glory in Christ?
If you are a demon in love with this world, glorying in something other than Christ, resenting His claim upon your life, acknowledge it, confess it, turn from it, and throw yourself upon Christ, who will cleanse you from the sinful rebellion towards Him. But if you are an imperfect person, admittedly, who doesn't love and glory in Christ as you ought, but you want to, rejoice. Because that's evidence of a new heart, a new nature. You're in good company. Paul, Tychicus, Onesimus, Mark, Aristarchus, Jesus, Justice, Epaphras, Nympha, Luke, Archippus. We're all at best inadequate people throwing ourselves upon the mercy of a perfect and adequate Savior. And so we, may we all look at ourselves honestly until we see our need for Christ in the first place. See that He is all. Dwell on Him and His glory. Come to faith in Him. And then as we receive Him in the first place, so walk in Him. Then make those real world decisions. Having seen that Christ is all, that He is better than the world, that I'd rather have Him than all that the world affords today, as we sometimes say. Having seen that, then make real-world decisions. As you work, as you earn, as you spend, as you interact with others, make real-world decisions that reflect the truths that Christ is glorious, that Christ is preeminent, that Christ is supreme. Arrange your lives accordingly in order that you might grow in your knowledge and love for Christ yourself and in order that you might make His preeminence more visible to the people around you. As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in Him as all of these varied people did in their varying life situations, personality types, giftings, and contexts.